We're in a recession. I don't care what the economists say. I see it. We're in a recession. And if this is handled badly, we're going to be in a depression. Uh, I'm not predicting the, the, the end of the world or an immediate recession, but the road ahead does not look great. The consumer is not rolled over yet. I think there's a zero chance of recession, but that doesn't mean PEs can't get compressed. What is unavoidable is stagflation. The House view is slowing economic activity, higher rates, and probably a 30% chance of recession as you look forward over the next 12 to 24 months. I think what's going on here is a realization that things are slowing down considerably, and we may very well be in a recession right now. Okay, it's happening. Everybody stay calm. What's the Everybody procedure, stay calm. Everyone, what's the procedure? Stay Buckle up, mother on fuckers. It's recession time. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. Another basic white guy and fucking the republic is sponsored by insane level members w jeremy d tam jam sam c ryan f rob nasby prof g nick g and cassie lmm nathan surst nathan second nathan e michelle h and matthew this was originally going to be a topical cream. And instead, you decided to torture us with another financial episode. And yes, Manny, I decided to torture everyone with an ear-bleeding, purely financial episode all about recessions. Because depending on who you believe, we're either in one, going into one, or nowhere near a recession. So I want to dissect the confusion a bit before we talk more generally about the nature and causes of recessions, and then more specifically, why it really doesn't fucking matter. You win the lottery or something? No, 99. I didn't win. What's with you two? Jesus. The reason I wanted to dig into this is because talking heads in the media get all frothy and lathered up put on their serious grimace as they deliver the news about declining equity markets, bubbles, inflation, consumer confidence, household debt, Walmart, and gas prices, all against a photo montage backdrop of Wall Street traders hanging their heads, the famous bull statue on Wall Street, a gas pump price display, empty grocery shelves, and people milling about on a line in some social services building. You can see it, can't you? Talking about recessions is like talking about the weather. Hot enough for you, Manny? <laughs> How's the recession treating you, 99? I'm going to have to take out a loan to pay off my loans. You can say that again. Hey, they say a cold front is blowing through. Oh, hey there, team. Oh, hey, hey Max. Max. It's a scorcher, eh? <laughs> Not sure what's higher, the temperature or gas prices. <laughs> <laughs> I say it's like talking about the weather because we all have some vague notion of what's about to happen and why and know that there's nothing we can do about it. Sure, you can dress appropriately for the weather, just like you can hunker down financially and tighten your belt. But these forces are going to do what they're going to do. Weather, recessions, they're inevitable. But there's another similarity. Individually, it might seem like there's fuck all you can do about it. But collectively, the choices we've made as a society are having an impact on the severity of these events. Because recessions are so much a part of our lives, this is technically the eighth recession in the past 50 years, I think it's good to understand exactly what they are, both by the book and in practical terms to our lives. For our international community of unfuckers, we're talking about U.S. recessions. But given our place in the world, the old adage that when America sneezes, the world catches a cold is sadly true. And my deepest apologies for that. All right, I apologize. You're really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. So we're going to begin with a quick discussion on the technical definition of downturns before we quickly drive through the past 50 years. Then we'll settle in for a little chat about the whys and wherefores and what have yous of our current predicament. UNFTR. UNFTR is also sponsored by Insane Level members Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookie of Ohio, Eric Wagner 101, 
David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Asshole, Awesome A, and Asoke. Chapter 1. Recessions Defined As you heard in our clip montage, there's a lot of loose talk when it comes to recessions, and the technical definition of one has little bearing on the financial reality of most people. By the books, recessions are actually pretty short, typically between 15 and 18 months, but the hangover can last for years. For example, this is technically only my third recession of my working life, but my career started in the aftermath of the early 90s recession. I started my career in 1994, and it was a bit of a slog, although it heated up in a fucking hurry as the back half of the 90s really started to cook. But again, by the books, I've technically only worked through three of them, including the current one, or the one that just passed, depending on how you define it. And as a side note, the current recession, which we'll cover, is indeed the pandemic recession, which is different from what might be on the horizon. It's confusing, but we'll get there. Anyway, the reason pundits play fast and loose with calling a recession is because we have an official agency responsible for marking the dates based on historical data. So it actually takes a while for a group of markers to settle before a period can be declared an official recession. The agency is called the National Bureau of Economic Research, or NBER, and they refer to it as business cycle dating. And here's how they define it. Quote, a recession is the period between a peak of economic activity and its subsequent trough, or lowest point. Between trough and peak, the economy is in an expansion. Expansion is the normal state of the economy. Most recessions are brief. However, the time that it takes for the economy to return to its previous peak level of activity or its previous trend path may be quite extended, end quote. What's fascinating about what they deem to be the most recent recession is that that period only lasted for three months, February of 2020 through April of 2020. This is the confusing aspect of our current economic situation because the NBER has already called the end of the recession that most of us are only now beginning to fear. That's what makes this such an interesting moment in modern economic history. While we do have quality data that dates back to the other pandemic early in the 20th century, and much of it, by the way, thanks to the work of Thomas Piketty, attempting to compare our early industrial economy to today's economy is fraught. That's why I think that the past 50 years is a more appropriate time frame for comparison's sake. We're going to review the prior recessions, but the fascinating thing about today is that we have experienced so many cycles in such a compressed period of time. Boom, bust, catastrophe, red-hot expansion, sudden cooling from inflation, tremendous volatility all around. This all happened within this pandemic era. It's enough to give you whiplash. Heading into 2020, this economy was red-hot, like unstoppable. Unemployment was at its lowest point since the post-World War II boom. GDP growth had finally ticked back up. Interest rates were still pressed close to zero. Inflation was in check. And household saving was finally beginning to increase after the protracted recovery from the financial crisis. For most of America, it was just the first time since the early 2000s that they could finally breathe a little easier. On the other hand, for those at the top of the economic spectrum, it was a fucking bonanza. Money was cheap and abundant, and the Wall Street robber barons were having a field day, particularly in response to the Trump-era tax cuts. Of course, as we know now, that would all come to a crashing halt. But there's a fascinating aspect to the immediate recovery and what happened at the very bottom of the economic ladder that we'll also address toward the end of the show. But by all measures, that brief three-month period was quite literally the most catastrophic period since the Great Depression. So when you hear pundits talking about the next recession, they're projecting that we'll have yet another one within just a couple of short years of the last official recession, something that hasn't happened since 1980. Chapter 2. Recessions of the Modern Era So let's go back. After two straight decades of remarkable growth post-World War II, the United States was about to settle into the modern economic era. Keynes was about to be put on the shelf. Hayek and Friedman were just getting warmed up. The post-war boost was fading and a new war in Vietnam was creating kind of a drag on the economy. Unrest was palpable in every corner of the nation as blacks and women demanded entrance to not only civil affairs, but the new economy as well. Neoliberalism as we know it today would be quietly ushered in under Nixon's cloak 
and would stay with us for the next 50 years and counting. Recession 1. Tricky Dick's Hard Luck, 1969 to 1970. The critical question is not whether we will grow, but how we will use that growth. The decade of the 70s, of the 60s, was also a period of great growth economically. But in that same 10-year period, we witnessed the greatest growth of crime, the greatest increase in inflation, the greatest social unrest in America in 100 years. Never has a nation seemed to have had more and enjoyed it less. Lasting only 11 months, but certainly responsible for a hangover that would rage a few times over the next decade, the U.S. economy hit a wall. GDP declined 0.6% and unemployment reached nearly 6% as the government tried to clamp down on creeping inflation by tightening monetary policy. One thing about old Dick was that he responded quickly and decisively to economic conditions, no matter how ill-advised his decisions may have been. Recession 2 Jerry Ford says, hold my beer. During the meetings on inflation, I listened carefully to many valuable suggestions. Since the summit, I have evaluated literally hundreds of ideas, day and night. My conclusions are very simply stated. There is only one point on which all advisors have agreed. We must whip inflation right now. There's a tendency, in hindsight, to hang the 70s around Carter's neck, forgetting that it was mostly Tricky Dick and Gerald Ford managing shit and making decisions that Carter would ultimately have to deal with. As is often the case when Republicans poop in a bag, light it on fire, and leave it on the doorstep of an incoming Democratic president. So, from November of 1973 to March of 75, the U.S. once again dipped into a recession and deeper than before. Unemployment rose to a high of 9%, while GDP declined by 3%. This was a bad one, brought on by the first oil crisis, a crisis manufactured by OPEC. The first real holy fuck moment when we realized the power of their combined concern. This put tremendous pressure on consumers, and the government was already over its skis from spending on the Vietnam War. The next recession, by the way, isn't until 1980, but that demonstrates how long the hangover can last, as the balance of the 70s remained fairly brutal. Even though the official end of the recession was formally called in 75, few would argue that it was over for the consumer. Recession 3. Sorry, Jimmy, we hardly knew ya. It's clear that the true problems of our nation are much deeper, deeper than gasoline lines or energy shortages, deeper even than inflation or recession. And I realized more than ever that as president, I need your help. Poor Jimmy Carter's term started in quicksand and ended in a pile of manure. During his last year in office, we experienced another, quote, official recession that lasted six months from January to July of 1980. Double-digit inflation, almost 8% unemployment, interest rates through the fucking roof, and consumer confidence in the toilet. Oh, and did we mention another energy crisis? The regime change in Iran once again threw the global commodities market into disarray. Literally, nothing was working. But that's okay, because Captain Cowboy Hat was on his way into the White House with a promise to set everything right in the world again. Recession 4. Welcome to Washington, Ronnie. Now, go fuck yourself. Well, the first step is to understand what they mean in human terms. How they're affecting the everyday lives of our people. Because behind every one of those numbers, are millions of individual lives. Young couples struggling to make ends meet, teenagers looking for work, older Americans threatened by inflation, small businessmen fighting for survival, and parents working for a better future for their children. Given the sheen Republicans like to put on the Reagan years, it's almost hard to imagine what a shit show the first few years really were for the Gipper. From July of 1981 through November of 1982, we once again fell back into recession after climbing out for about 10 seconds. This would cut super deep, carving 2.9% off GDP and lasting for 16 months. Unemployment reached double digits again, as the Iranian crisis continued to bleed out and affect the global supply of oil. This is the famous period of the Volcker tourniquet, which saw the prime lending rate in the country top 20%, 20%. You fucking imagine? Reagan had also slashed taxes and increased spending dramatically, 
blowing a massive hole in the federal budget without sending any relief to average Americans. In fact, he went the other way and cut federal welfare spending across the board while minting the military-industrial complex with colossal sums of government contract cash. Eventually, Volcker's shock therapy did work and inflation started to cool, but even the beginning of Reagan's second term was pretty rocky. It took years to fully bake this sucker and prepare us to head into the 90s. And I'm sure the 90s started off just fine as a result. Right, 99? 99? Uh, not exactly. Recession 5. Read my lips. Here's a recession. The American worker is the most productive worker in the world. We need to save more. We need to expand the pool of capital for new investments that mean more jobs and more growth. This one was a bit of a self-inflicted wound by Papa Bush, who was counting on a war fever victory lap lasting a wee bit longer. But since he decided to meddle in Middle Eastern affairs, which caused oil prices to surge, we experienced a quick but sharp decline that technically lasted about eight months, from July of 1990 to March of 1991, but was clearly much longer than that. GDP declined about 1.5% during this period, and unemployment hovered around 6.8%. All told, it was a little too deep and set the table for a surprise victory over the incumbent president just a short while later. While the Clinton era technically didn't have a recession, the first couple of years were tight, to say the least. So Clinton gets a pass, again, on a technicality. They don't call him Slick Willie for nothing. The Bush clan wasn't as fortunate. Despite coming in with surpluses and a rocking economy, cracks were beginning to show pretty early in George W. Bush's administration. While we all know the moment that everything changed and the quick and brutal damage inflicted on the economy, the early 2000s recession actually started prior to 9-11. Recession 6, when the world stopped turning. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Lasting from March of 2001 through November, the six-month recession was punctuated by an event that forever changed the world. And that's not hyperbole. The whole year is a blur, and events tend to meld together in our minds over time. This was just after the dot-com bubble burst, and in the middle of the Enron scandal as well. And while the pain was short-lived in economic terms, with only a 0.3% decline in GDP, this stretch of time shattered the faith of America in a way that we'll be unpacking for years to come. Of course, what we do know is that our ferocious response to 9-11 continued unabated and built a new surveillance and war economy that would push the limits throughout most of Bush's term. But a combination of bad tax policy, loosening of regulations, and historic fuckery unfolding in the housing market would eventually lead us to the most protracted and difficult economic crisis since the 1930s, leaving Bush with yet another sad legacy of bookending his two-term presidency with technical recessions. Recession 7. All hell breaks loose. We've seen triple-digit swings in the stock market. Major financial institutions have teetered on the edge of collapse, and some have failed. As uncertainty has grown, many banks have restricted lending, credit markets have frozen, and families and businesses have found it harder to borrow money. We are in the midst of a serious financial crisis. So technically, this spans two presidencies, but it's extremely clear that the brunt of it can mostly be attributed to W. And again, the timing here is really interesting. Most of us think back to this time and recall that it was 2008 when the damage was done. And that's true. But the signs were there. In fact, the NBER places the official start as December of 2007. Even nuttier is that they call the end of it as June of 2009, although we know that it would take years and years for the economy to regain its full footing. Though the peak of the decline was steeper, the period of recession itself saw a 4.3% decline in GDP and the nation hit a peak unemployment rate of 10%. We all know the story by now. The housing bubble burst and devastated the underpinning of the entire U.S. economy. The thing that couldn't possibly fail did, and so did the banks. Well, a couple of them at least, until we coined a new phrase, too big to fail. Throw a bizarre oil spike out of nowhere and based on no fundamental logic except fuckery and greed, as we've covered before, and every corner of the economy was thrown into a complete tailspin. Of course, the lessons we learned during this time, 
Things like expanding social safety nets, initiating government spending programs, flooding money through the markets to provide liquidity to the financial sector, bailing out large corporations and the like, would be instructive for the next recession in both positive and negative ways. First, we saw what worked. More importantly, we saw that it wasn't enough. If we were ever to face such horrific circumstances again, we would know what to do. But surely, that would be a while, right? Wrong. Recession 8. Trump pours gasoline on everything, then flames out from a virus. We're working urgently with Congress on legislation to support the millions of workers, small businesses, and industries who have been hit hard by the virus through no fault of their own. Our goal is to get relief to Americans as quickly as possible so that families can get by and small businesses can keep workers on the payroll. Right. So as we covered in the introduction, our eighth modern recession was technically only three months long. But the reason it was so short is because of the historic amount of financial support that went coursing through the system at every level. And we're going to speak to this in more detail shortly. Suffice to say that we have yet to really come to grips with this era, despite the NBER officially calling the end so quickly. While I suppose the next recession, if that really does occur, will be linked to the COVID recession, it will also be right on many levels to separate them. I know the numbers are pretty fresh, but looking at them again in black and white is pretty staggering. Heading into COVID, Trump was able to hop into the Obama-era slipstream and continue fueling a red-hot economy. Trump initiated seismic tax cuts that generated a windfall for the top 1%, loosened regulations in an already low interest rate environment, and browbeat the Fed into keeping rates pinned low and increased government defense spending with alacrity. And then the hammer dropped as the virus took hold of the population and the economy. A 53.8% decline in GDP. I mean, Jesus. 13% unemployment. Entire sectors completely shut down. Only essential workers and businesses operating. Complete and utter fucking pandemonium, the likes of which I hope we never see again and cannot believe we made it through. Like seriously, had we not suddenly adopted every possible Keynesian measure and lessons learned from underfunding certain efforts during the financial crisis, we would have been even more fucked than we were. You don't have to be a millionaire or a billionaire to purchase the delicious native roasted coffee from the Onkachog people on the Puspatuck Reservation in New York. Uh, just go to unftr.com slash shop to buy it. Uh, <laughs> coffee makes me horny. I was just saying the other day to my beloved fiance, Rosario Dawson, that we should buy some unfucking coffee to enjoy together in bliss and love. Oh, it's not about you, Senator Booker. Mellow Maynard, I shall have, my precious. Get away from the microphone, Senator Cruz. Look, let me be perfectly clear. Buying native roasted coffee from unftr.com helps support indigenous economic development and this podcast. For far too long, the corporate oligarchy has robbed us of our right to organic, fair trade, native roasted coffee. That ends today. Chapter 3. Thwart, Mitigate, or Fuck It. Another reason I like this topic is because no one is an expert while it's going on. Everyone is just guessing. And not one of the recessions that we mentioned was the same as another. They were all brought on by unique circumstances and they manifested in different ways depending upon the relative strength of the economy prior the nature of the period of expansion, and public policies that were enforced to mitigate or perhaps exacerbate the severity of each one. It's helpful, I think, to revisit some themes that we've established in our time together. The first is that recessions have occurred throughout history, but seem to be a recurring character in the theater of capitalism. That's not to say it's unique to capitalism, as some might argue. Centrally planned economies, fossil fuel-dependent economies, emerging market economies, mature market economies with and without robust social programs, all fall victim to downturns for various reasons, and external events have a huge impact on a nation's ability to maneuver through economic hardship. War, sanctions, shifting alliances, expanding or contracting trade agreements, inventory shortages or gluts, 
natural disasters, poor crop yields, you name it. It's rare that a single event such as 9-11 has the ability to generate a recession, as there are typically underlying conditions and weaknesses that hasten or deepen one and a confluence of events that contribute to it. Though they're hard to spot when you're in it. My glasses! I can't see without my glasses! Conversely, if the underlying conditions are relatively strong, then even the most extreme event can create a shock like the one felt on 9-11, but the ensuing downturn will be relatively short. 9-11 is a curious one, as the NBER has us backsliding months prior to the event, so in this case, the immediate surge in war and terrorism spending may have even propelled a faster recovery. Overall, the tendency is to blame the system, and by that I mean the economic framework. The capitalism is to blame, and I get it, but I think that's reductive. My Marxist friends would disagree with this and promote the idea that red-hot economies that crash every 7 to 10 years are exactly a symptom of the capitalist system. But that's not my assertion. Not to mention, I would agree. But this is where we can go back and reaffirm some of the concepts that we've worked through together to contextualize boom times and downturns and examine the policy measures used to bring us to full recovery. Prior to the Great Depression, recessions in America occurred every two to three years. It's hard to even describe the volatility of our economy as the nation struggled to grow competing economies in the North and the South, manage westward expansion, and compete with Europe. The flip side reality of this era is that we were the ones catching a cold when Europe sneezed. Even periods of remarkable GDP growth, such as we witnessed in the post-Civil War era and the height of the Industrial Age, were punctuated by severe disruptions that mostly impacted the lower and working classes of the country. The Great Depression was remarkable on many levels, but mostly because it was so indiscriminate. Nothing gets the attention of policymakers more than when upper classes are hit in the wallet. Our response to the Depression was sweeping reform that took place over a decade. Each reform added another layer of defense for the poor and working class people of the country. Many of these were too late to mitigate the circumstances of those most affected by the Depression, which is something that neoliberal intellectuals like to point to. It was the war that got us out of the Depression. It was monetary policy. It just worked itself out. Well, the real answer is all of the above. A country as rich in human capital and natural resources as the United States was bound to recover. And the war economy did contribute to the recovery, though not all at once. It's never one thing, but a suite of measures and levers pulled at the right or perhaps the wrong time to cap the peaks and curtail the troughs. The key is balance. So it is a statement of fact that we have had fewer recessions in the modern era, the past 50 years that we're highlighting, than we did in previous eras. And it's also a statement of fact that the standard of living has steadily increased in the United States over the same period. So who's right? John Maynard Keynes? Speaking of which, have you tried our new Mellow Maynard brand of native roasted coffee? Marx? Hayek? Schumpeter? Stiglitz? Larry Summers? Paul Krugman? Milton Friedman? Fuck Milton Friedman! For every era, for every circumstance, there's a person with a theory that has some merit. Our contention has been that, on balance, the Keynes to Krugman wing of the economic theorists have a better approach. Again, I'm speaking in generalizations, but we've covered much of this before. The broad idea is that if we're going to exist within a global market system, then we must accept that there will be periods of prosperity and growth and periods of decline. In order to balance the highs and the lows, it's better to operate within a clearly defined regulatory framework with domestic policy measures that anticipate both the highs and the lows. The counter-argument made by the Freedmans and the Hayeks of the world is that the absence of regulation in domestic policy intervention is more natural, just, and efficient. As much as I've worked to decimate this line of thinking, it's important to recognize that when it comes to economic policy, nothing is binary. Governments have indeed intervened to the detriment of growth and economic health. But the more compelling storyline over an extended period of time is that markets are not natural. They're not just or efficient without clearly defined regulations that curtail the forces of greed. And that as we demonstrated in our MMT episode and others, an economy as robust and dominant as ours, with not just a sovereign currency, but the global reserve currency, has far more levers than most others to manage volatility and how our population is impacted at home. Boring. Okay, okay. 
So let's talk about the would-be recession of 2022 or 23 or 24. Who knows? Now, the Federal Reserve is facing one of its toughest challenges in decades, raising interest rates to cool inflation without killing consumer demand and jobs and pushing the economy into recession. One trend that has emerged is our over-reliance on the Federal Reserve to potentially thwart a recession or, at a minimum, mitigate the severity of it. There's an accepted belief, almost a consensus among economists and certainly the financial pundit class, that the Federal Reserve controls the fate of the economy with the raising and lowering of the federal funds rate. So we'll start there and talk about the implications of fucking with this rate. Of all of the policy tools at its disposal, this rate is believed to be the most powerful because it has the ability to expand or constrict money supply in the nation. The higher the rate, the more it encourages savings through making things more expensive and borrowing more difficult. The cheaper the rate, the more incentive there is to expand money supply, which theoretically heats up the consumer economy. Now, obviously, I'm oversimplifying, and the Federal Reserve has a number of powerful weapons to choose from, but this is the one that really pervades both the discourse and the consumer economy. So, for example, one of the most direct impacts of this rate is the home mortgage market. Most mortgage holders have availed themselves of a 30-year fixed rate during the low interest rate environment over the past 10 years. But an increase in the federal funds rate has made it more expensive for banks to access funds now, so the increase is being passed through to the consumer in the form of higher rates. So the problem occurs when new mortgage seekers, like right now, go to the market and encounter higher fixed rates, which makes adjustable rates more appealing because they're offered at a lower interest rate at initiation. But, as the terms suggest, the rate is adjustable after a period of time depending upon the rate that it's fixed to, most notably prime. So that's already rearing its ugly head as adjustable rate mortgages have doubled since January. And that is a bad trend, one that led to the housing collapse in 2008. So why would the Fed increase interest rates if it knows that it's going to potentially hurt working class borrowers? And why did a relatively marginal increase in rates compared to historical federal funds rates cause the markets to freak out? Well, it's really all about inflation. Inflation is considered the most evil of all economic factors. And for some good reason, although you can't look at it in a vacuum. The working theory that inflation ruins everything is what leads us to take measures like raising interest rates to cool the economy, no matter the level of suffering it inflicts. The idea is to beat consumers and businesses into submission by taking money out of the economy and reducing the incentives for risk-taking. Of course, the flip side is when consumers don't spend, businesses don't earn, and people get laid off. So when Paul Volcker choked the economy first under Carter and then under Reagan by hiking interest rates to 20%, his method was one of a perceived last resort. Instead of pouring money into social safety net programs and cutting taxes on the lowest income brackets and hammering the rich with tax increases to curtail their fucking spending, he jammed us all into a recession. But if we zoom out, we can clearly see that there were other factors at play at the time. Remember that the Strategic Oil Reserve was only instituted in 1975, so fluctuation in energy prices had a huge impact on inflation. The global markets were in disarray relative to the dollar because Nixon had taken us off the gold standard peg. There was more at work than just interest rates and inflation, but since that's the avenue that we took, that's the playbook that was burned into our minds. But shock therapy like this always comes at the expense of the public. These days, the Federal Reserve is loath to raise rates because cheap money has been a boon to big business. But what did big businesses do with all their newfound cheap money? They went on buying sprees not of talent, but of their own stocks. Now, Jay Powell and his recent predecessors at the Fed know this. That's why rates have only marginally ticked up. His message wasn't to consumers, even though it will impact all of us. It was really to public companies and to Wall Street, his way of acknowledging that we've created a bubble economy of phantom gains and returns in the equity markets and that the music has to stop at some point. That's why you're seeing capital flee the stock market it's less about the rates than it is the wink, wink, nudge, nudge that the party is over. Closing time, open all the doors and let you out into the world. In fact, the history of the federal funds rate shows you how insanely low it still is. 
If you take the post-financial crisis, easy money era out of the picture, you have to go all the way back to the early 1960s to find a time when the rate was so low. Corporate America has been flushed for so long with easy money that the general sentiment among policymakers is that we have to rip off the Band-Aid at some point. If the Fed was serious about really trimming inflation through hiking interest rates, it would be signaling Volcker-like remedies. Instead, we're still relatively low and only even approaching historical norms. The panic that you're sensing on Wall Street, by the way, is a little different this time around. That's what makes this such a fascinating period. Not only is capital fleeing the equity markets, but the bond market is down as well. This is a really rare correlation, and it's bleeding over to other speculative areas like crypto. So right now, investors are just taking their lumps. There is no safe harbor. Even cash is garbage because of inflation. It's really quite a pickle. But Wall Street, as we've learned the hard way, isn't Main Street. Chapter 4 Hey, yo, Max, we gonna be okay, or what? The pain on Main Street is related to what Wall Street is feeling, but still very different. Inflation is crushing the working class. Of this, there can be no doubt. And as we've talked about, inflation in the United States is a combination of real-world events and corporate greed. What's bizarre about this moment in time is that we're somehow in the midst of a recovery, early in expansion phase with respect to inventories and purchases, late stage with respect to where unemployment is, incomplete crisis due to inflation, have a strong dollar, failing equity and bond markets, artificially pumped up energy prices, and low taxes. I think it's why so many pundits are just throwing darts at this point. If we look at the most reliable predictors of recessions over the past several decades, it's not all that clear that we're headed toward a recession. Take, for example, the Conference Board of Leading Economic Indicators Index, which measures 10 key components of the economy. Average weekly hours in manufacturing, average weekly initial claims for unemployment insurance, and manufacturers' new orders for consumer goods and materials. ISM Index of New Orders, manufacturers' new orders for non-defense capital goods, excluding aircraft orders, and building permits for new private housing units. The S&P 500 Index of Stock Prices, Leading Credit Index, an interest rate spread between 10-year Treasury bonds and the federal funds rate, and average consumer expectations for business conditions. So here's what the index says. Quote, a range of downside risks, including inflation, rising interest rates, supply chain disruptions, and pandemic-related shutdowns, particularly in China, continue to weigh on the outlook. Nevertheless, we project the U.S. economy should resume expanding in Q2. That's right now following Q1's contraction in real GDP. Despite downgrades to previous forecasts, the conference board still projects 2.3% year-over-year U.S. GDP growth in 2022, end quote. So this index has demonstrated that in every recession for the past 50 years, the 12 to 15 months leading into what is ultimately characterized as a recession by the NBER is preceded by a decline in the aggregate data. They're never wrong, by the way. Now, right now, we're on a flat to slightly positive trajectory, even with all of these disruptions baked in, oil, inflation, conflict, etc. So add to the mix that hourly wages are growing. Soft indicators like travel and out-of-home dining are all up to pre-pandemic levels. Job openings are spiking rapidly, so there aren't enough people to fill the openings. But the average wage is now no longer outpacing inflation. So according to the St. Louis Fed, personal household savings, which is a percentage of disposable income that people have to put towards things like investing or household spending, is back to around 6.2% as of this month. That's off from the incredible highs of the pandemic where people had jobs and few extraneous discretionary expenses or no job but a government subsidy. But it's still only half of what it was during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Essentially, even in a strong job market, with a full post-pandemic recovery, people have less money in their pockets than generations prior. All of which doesn't indicate one way or the other what lies ahead. Rules, even like the conference board follows, are meant to be broken. And if we head into a technical recession, it won't be entirely self-inflicted. Global forces are indeed dragging down the economy. We're undoubtedly playing a role, particularly where interest rates are concerned, because we're still the financial center of the world. So the easiest way to think about it is that an increase in interest rates will also increase the relative strength of the dollar. 
And since most of the world's debt is dollar denominated, it will be slightly more expensive to pay down debt throughout the world. That has an outsized impact on emerging markets, and we're already seeing signs of nations having difficulty managing their debt burdens. And then there's China. China is both a producer of cheap goods from cheap labor and resources, and a large consumer of goods now that so much of the Chinese population is moving into the consumer class. Because the country's COVID policies are so restrictive, there is absolutely a slowdown of manufacturing, which in turn impacts consumption within China. If you're not working, you're not buying. There is an empty seat at the high rollers table right now, so the pot is just gonna be smaller until China comes fully back online. Now that said, the core indicators of US economic activity are really strong, like really, really strong. Employment, velocity, growth, etc. Everything pointing up. It's just we have this huge inflation problem right now. But I want to back up for a second. The only statistic that I believe matters is household wealth. Recession, no recession. Here are the most recent household wealth figures from the end of 2021 compared to 1989. In 1989, the top 10% of U.S. households possessed 60% of the wealth in the country. The bottom 50% had 3.7%. Right now, the top 10% holds 70% of the wealth. That's a 15% increase. The bottom 50% has only 2.6% of the total wealth, and that's a 30% decrease. Everyone in the middle is just squeezed, and their wealth is even more dramatically impacted during recessions or inflationary periods because these are the people we're relying on to keep the economy humming. They're the consumers, the spenders on necessities, but also discretionary items such as travel. The bottom 50% is that paycheck to paycheck can be wiped out by a student loan default, rent hike, credit card debt, hospital bill, or what have you part of the economy. So no, you're not gonna be okay. But it has nothing to do with whether there's a recession coming or not. If we have accepted the general trajectory of a global market economy, where we sit at the center, then we must accept the cyclical nature of it. Recovery, expansion, overheating, recession. Unforeseen events will periodically disrupt this rhythm, but if we zoom out again, this is the song that's on repeat. So if that's the natural tendency of a market system, then the only choices that we can make are in preparation for or in response to such events. The most consistent trend line in the United States is the most important metric, and that is household wealth. And we're not talking about 1% winning lottery type of wealth. We're talking about assets versus debt, owning more of your home than you owe. Hell, just owning a home at all. Reasonable debt relative to one's income, consistent hourly wage growth that outpaces inflation over time. Right-wing sources and even most moderate so-called liberal media outlets will tell you that consumer spending as a result of robust social safety measures like unemployment insurance, the child tax direct payments, wage increases, anything that suggests that the bottom 50% of the country has been given too much, that these are the things that are responsible for inflation and therefore whatever recessionary environment we find ourselves in is your fault. And it is simply not fucking true. Corporate profits are up 25% already this year. That's on your back. Energy prices are up, and yet there's enough supply to meet and even exceed demand. China has effectively taken 15% of the global economy offline, so cheap goods and raw materials are definitely harder to procure. That's true, but it's also not your fault. There's only one consistent theme in all of this. When times are good, the top has seen incredible gains. When times are bad, the top continues to see incredible gains, all because the system allows for this phenomenon. We covered it in our student debt episode. Hell, we covered it in our capitalism episode, our corporate irresponsibility episodes, and so on. Every decade since the free market neoliberal order took the wheel, household wealth has declined for the bottom 50% of the country. The reason we weathered the pandemic financial storm is because we unleashed the power of the federal government at all levels, not just the financial markets. Then we allowed for corporate greed to claw back all of the gains that were made. For the briefest of periods, a matter of mere months, household wealth actually increased during the pandemic. 
This was the metric that was too much for the establishment to bear, a bridge too far for the moneyed class. When we finally come to terms with the fact that the power elite in this country, irrespective of party affiliation, hold such disdain for the working class, we'll see the entire picture more clearly. It's not that they don't want you to get ahead as much as they need you to stay behind. There's a difference. Campaign finance reform, humane immigration reform, student debt relief and reform, early childhood education, childcare, incentivizing clean energy and eliminating oil and gas subsidies, eliminating the carried interest tax loophole, increasing corporate taxes, direct child tax payments instead of credits, universal health care, congressional ethics reform so they can't fucking trade on inside information and on and on. We have the answers. We know what to do. Of course, they'll never get done by millionaires in Congress. But here's the thing. Even if we do them all, recessions will happen. The only difference is that it won't wipe out the bottom 50% of the country, forcing it to start over from scratch, as happens once a decade, every decade, like clockwork. More for them means less for you. Occupy the Democratic Party. Recession hype is just a distraction. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, welcome into post-show musings. How you doing, 99? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm better now. Okay. After you had a... We both had mental breakdowns this week. We did. We did a little bit. We did. Yeah. We're in it together. <laughs> Always. We're sort of like timing our menstrual cycles. Yes. I went first. You went second. It did. Yeah, I had a, um, a migraine, which I haven't had in more than a decade, that completely, it's like, a, it was like a complete system shutdown. Like you just heard the computer just power down and uh, all hell broke loose in my body for like 24 hours. And I don't even, I actually don't even remember yesterday. Do you know that? It's all a blur. Weird. Yeah. I saw you. You did? Did I see you yesterday? I did. I did. I saw you. No, I'm telling yes, you. It was we a... hugged. Oh, they... Yeah, thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. I don't even tell you what happened when I when I left you. And you, too, suffered a breakdown this week, mm -hmm. uh, which is exciting. Yeah. Mine was less uh, less migraine, more mental. It's all happening in the same part of our, our bodies, though, yeah, right? But it didn't... My pain was different. So I wanted to get this done and recorded yesterday. But I, you know, had a complete fucking meltdown. So finished it up today, only to scroll through my podcast app and see that The Economist actually did a kind of a similar show that just dropped today, which I think is actually good for everybody to listen to if you enjoyed this episode, because they interviewed one of the most hawkish members of the Fed, and they interviewed Larry Summers, who you know I really love. And Summers is like, they're definitely going into a recession. And I warned everybody this was going to happen. Blah, blah, blah. And the most hawkish person at the Fed, self-described and, and just as described by everybody else, was like, no, nah, we're not going into a recession. And I thought it was just so, it was just such a, a brilliant counterpoint to look at these two people that are, I mean, Larry Summers was the fucking Treasury Secretary. So he has been around a long time. And to look at the two extreme examples of people that you would both think would be the least sanguine about our chances going forward. And they had completely different views on, on what was happening. So it is confusing. And that's why I wanted to just kind of undress this. I keep seeing it in my newsfeed. Oh, recession fears looming. And it's valid because inflation does fuck everything up. But I'll point you to another great podcast, the David McWilliams podcast recently talked about the persistent, ongoing rampant inflation in Turkey and how the entire economy just sort of works around it. Like it's, they're still going through this boom economic cycle, but they've figured out how to incorporate runaway inflation into it. It's kind of fascinating. So that's why I looked at this and I was like, okay, nothing is ever just black and white. And that's why economic theory changes over time. 
and even the conference board of leading economic indicators, which is something that I look at personally, because it's always been right, at least in my lifetime and spanning out a couple of decades, may or may not be right in this case. If we go into a recession this year, then those economic indicators that that indicate that we've been in decline for 15 straight months would not have predicted this recession. So just really fascinating stuff, but it's all fucking noise. And that's why I wanted to pull back a little bit and be able to build upon a lot of the themes that we've successfully built upon together in this show, which is to lay the groundwork to have this type of elevated discussion about the nature of recessions in the economy. The one point that I, I want everybody to walk away with is that, again, if we are to accept that we are in a market system, and I think that that is fairly clear, that we are in a market economy, a global market economy, and it's not to say that it's capitalist, but it is a global market economy, then we must accept that, that a global market economy has its own circadian rhythm. And it goes from expansion to overheating, to a recession, to recovery. And it just happens like that. What you do as a choice, as a nation through policy measures, will dictate how well you do as an individual in this society. And so you can look at any sort of outcropping of a bad economic environment. It impacts education, it impacts mental health, it impacts savings, retirement, life expectancy. All of these things are directly attributable to the socioeconomic health of a nation. Those are the things that are a choice because when we go through a recession, most of the rest of the world, if not all of the world, is also going through that recession and probably worse than we are. And yet, on the human capital metrics, those countries don't have nearly the fallout that we do. So that's why I wanted to suggest that just ignore the financial pundit class because they're going to talk about shit that really, whether they, and they always decouple the markets. I love this. They're always like, well, let's be clear that the stock market is not the economy. But the only fucking reason they're talking about recessions on television is because the stock market is down. They don't really give a shit otherwise. It's that their portfolios are at risk. And they'll use this classic trope, which I should have fucking put in the episode. Damn it. They say, well, here it is. It's in the episode. It's in post-show fucking musings, right? They say, and don't forget, by the way, there's also real people in the stock market with their 401ks and their pension plans, and that's at risk too. So we can't just ignore what's happening in the stock market, even though it's not the real economy. Well, okay, 80% of the stock market is made up from investments of the wealthy class and institutional investors. So you're talking about that 20%. And of that 20%, 40% of the portfolios are in balanced portfolios, meaning that they're in some sort of other class than equities. So yes, would a crash really severely hurt the potential income of a retiree who's living off that? Yes. Will it happen for a brief period of time? Yes. Does it decimate them entirely? Never. It doesn't happen. What they're really concerned about is the wealth of 80% of those funds that are attributed to the institutional investors. So they're just talking about the it's the same conversation about the 1%. So ignore fucking all of it. It doesn't really matter. You should understand it. You should know it. We should all be, I think, economically aware of our circumstances and how this all moves. But it doesn't change or shouldn't distract from our focus on the things that matter to us day to day. And that is getting those child tax credit payments to be direct payments and not credits. Getting universal health care having universal access to, let's say, abortion, early childhood education, all subsidized childcare. Those are the things that create a healthy population. And guess fucking what? As hopefully you've heard in our topical cream, when you have a healthy population that is socioeconomically secure, the other thing that you have less of is things like school shootings. And things like violent actions, riots, despair that manifests itself in horrific events like only the United States seems to be able to manufacture. That's what we're talking about here. Have a recession, don't have a recession, be in a hot market, not a hot market. Only thing that matters is undergirding this economy with make sense human measures that provide dignity and care 
to the most vulnerable people in our population, because that's when we have the resources to pay attention in a quality way to the people who might fall through those cracks and do themselves harm or do harm to others. It all ties together. Just don't worry about recessions. You know, I'm I'm not responsible for the recession, right? I felt like you were pointing at me. You're doing this. You don't care about children. You were absolutely my proxy. I was <laughs> using you as the 1%, you bastard. Wow. Look at you. Yeah, it's look, only because you're sitting here. I look just like the 1%. A lot of you does. What? Yeah. Because I'm white? Keep going. I'm blonde? Oh, you're Jewish. Oh. Obviously. All right, let's not go you down that path. You control the banks. You control Hollywood, right? <laughs> isn't that isn't that how it goes? Ooh. So less than 1% of you in this country, but it's all your fault. Of course. Right? That's another thing. During bad times, we victim blame, right? We we look to we look to shame During the other. During good otherness. times, they blame Jews. <laughs> and and even and it gets worse, right? And yeah. and that's how the narrative changes too. That's the other part of this thing that's so frustrating. It's like that clip that we've used before from, we were talking about Michael Lewis's, we were talking about the big short and the clip where Steve Carell's character says, I have a feeling when all of this is over, they're just gonna blame poor people and immigrants for what happened. I have a feeling that in a few years, people are gonna be doing what they always do in the economy tanks. They will be blaming immigrants and poor people. And it takes a while for that narrative to set in, but it absolutely sets in. So this outrageous clip from Marjorie Taylor Greene the other day, responding to the fucking school shooting by turning the conversation towards immigrants. Good. Because that makes sense. By the way, Marjorie, immigrants undocumented or documented in this country commit violent acts and crime at a lower percentage than domestically born citizens of the United States. Of course. Period. End of story. So they will try to, most people won't, shift the narrative as brazenly as somebody like Marjorie. But it's implicit in the narrative there that the inflationary environment that we're living in is our fault. They're literally blaming us with a straight face because not because I think they're part of this this concerted effort to poverty shame, but they actually fucking believe us. That That's how inculcated into the media discourse it, it's been that, oh, we gave them too much. And they overspent and then they overheated the economy. It's this, this paternalistic view that they have to take care of everything and just meet out enough for everybody to eke out an existence. But God forbid we give everybody too much, just enough to pay their bills and be self-satisfied like every other fucking industrialized country in this in this world. It's just amazing. So, Well, there was one thing you brought up that I was unsure about. You said that there weren't enough workers to fill the openings, so... I was confused about that because I thought I thought that the labor shortage was kind of a farce. That yeah. it was just boomers not wanting, not understanding that we don't want less than minimum wage. And minimum wage at $15 isn't even accounting for now inflation. So confused about that. Yeah, what's interesting is there there's a couple forces at play here. So one is the real gap and in healthy economic periods. And, and that's kind of what I'm arguing is that outside of inflation, this is a relatively healthy economic period. Those job openings, we would have more job openings and we, we would have people to fill them. Right now, the gap is tremendous, though. There's a few elements of that. One is, as we've covered before, there fewer senior citizens came back. I guess they are seniors at this point, right? These old fucks. Uh, fewer senior citizens that were, that had to be employed during the financial crisis and thereafter, they left during the pandemic for obviously because they were afraid to expose themselves to health risks and they didn't come back. And that can be seen as, I think, a, a really positive thing. I don't think we should be putting seniors to work or relying on them to close the gap and, you know, to be cashiers at retail outlets. The other part of it is, as again, as we covered in our immigration episode, despite the narrative in the right wing media, there are substantially less immigrants making it into the country to take the low wage jobs, whether it's in farming or the hospitality sector or the, the areas that they typically fill. And so that there is an artificial gap from a policy perspective. So fewer immigrants coming into the country because we're not such a great country to be in right now. And we have really restrictive policies at the border. 
and seniors that did not come back into the market. So that gap is wider than it should be. But the fact that there is a gap, even though it's wider, is indicative of the fact that we have a on balance, really healthy economy. And that's part of what's tripping everybody up right now. What's interesting though, is I have a, a theory that wage growth has been capped, not because the corporations are taking in such incredible profits and decided not to share them, but exactly because they're pushing this narrative that we're heading into a recession. So it's working in a couple different ways. One is, yes, the markets are responding to it. So it's like, ooh, well, if the markets are down, we must be. But corporations, once again, have a very convenient outlet to say to workers that, yeah, I know everything really looks hot and I've given you raises up until this point, but I really have to stop it because mm, just not sure how things are gonna go. It's a very convenient narrative and it's a false one. Yeah, I mean, tech companies, big, big tech's already doing hiring freezes and there's been a ton of layoffs, which is interesting. I don't know if you've been following that recently. Yeah. So it's like, feels like the opposite, right? That yeah. Of what should be happening. So, well, tech companies are getting absolutely hammered. So if you look at the S&P index, for example, if not for Apple, if you took Apple out of it, the S&P would be down dramatically and it's already down dramatically, but it would be a staggering number that would really raise some eyebrows. So Apple's been sort of propping that up and there's a, a curiosity among the financial observers about, well, how long is that even going to last? Like, because if Apple tanks, then, then the whole sector is fucked. But the tech sector was so overblown, was so overvalued. What's interesting is that the PE ratios, the price to earning ratios are finally coming back down to normal. And they're even still way in excess of where they were prior to the 2000s, I mean, way in excess prior to the 2000s. So there was normalcy built into the valuations of these companies prior to, I guess, the, the real, real cheap money era. And we're only just beginning to see that level off. And that's part of what Powell's trying to do by saying to everybody, like, the music's about to stop. So that's an interesting thing that is specific to the tech sector, because the tech sector was so far off the charts in terms of earnings to like true value that it's coming back down to earth. But they too can't accept that. They're part of Wall Street. They're part of that same psychosis, which is no matter what's happening on the top line, I have to project net income growth. I have to move forward. I can never have a bad quarter. So if I know that things are gonna contract or they're gonna, my supply chain is gonna be more expensive through inflationary pressures, et cetera, I have to get this back from somewhere, not because they're not operating at a more normal fucking margin than they, they have been historically, but because they can't, be shown to be going backwards. And so where do they cut it? They cut it in the labor force. So expect to see that play out in other sectors. It's just that the tech sector is leading the way because they were so abundantly overvalued prior to this. Crazy stuff. Wild. Wild, man. Wild, so crazy. So that is it for this week. I'm really excited about a few things that we have coming up. There's not much I can tease about it really because they're, they're in the works. But we're going to continue with a few key collaborations and some promo swaps between some shows that we really admire. So we've, we have some good stuff on the horizon. And as always, you should know that Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro. Manny Faces. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Keep saying the music stop. Now I have American Pie stuck in my head. Bye bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. I have a Chevy. Good old. Yes, you do. Yeah. Boys are drinking whiskey and rye, I think, right? Yeah. Singing. This will be the day. And I die. That's so often. No, I think it was beautiful. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern, who can sing on key every time. <laughs> Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by inflation and distributed by interest rates. Not liberal tears. No, not liberal tears. Liberal tears. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to unftrpod at gmail.com. That's not going to do. I'm always going to do the outro as Ben Shapiro. Yikes. Yikes. Then I go throw up in my mouth. Connect with us on social at unftrpod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash unftr. Visit our book list at Bookshop and find all of our Marxist books at bookshop.org slash shop slash unftrpod. Even I was reading an article about the Cisneros, which we probably should talk about mm. real quickly. Yeah. But they called like Bernie the, the socialist wing 
of the party or something. Okay. I was like, fuck you. you. They're literally the called progressives. Unreal. It w- and it was like a normal news source. It wasn't like a, but so they're all socialists. Yeah, nuance doesn't matter. No. Hang tight on the Cisneros. Fucking what's his face? He was like, I won. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> I know, right? And she's like, like, no, you didn't. It's 140 votes. We're going to have a recount and the absentees aren't in yet. Good. God, I, that, that night was fucking painful. That's what led up to your migraine, I think. Well, it it kept me up about two hours yeah. longer than I would have normally been up. Yeah. But um, I signed off and said night, but I was up for like also another hour. It was refreshing. So awful. Back and forth. And it was back fucked and up. Forth. And then it went down. Yeah. And I was like, what's happening? I woke up and it was like a fever dream. I swear it said 35% counted. Like, but what I- is this, Florida? Come <laughs> yeah. on, get your shit together. And that uh, one county that has like eight fucking people in it, what's happening in that I county? I don't know. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, don't count Cisneros out just yet, although it might be done by the time this drops. But absentees really are important. If they had a really strong ground game, although ugh, it's always dicey because you, she needs to pick up, I think, what is it, 150 votes all in. So they would have needed to collect, I don't know, 1,000 to 1,500 absentees, and and it would have to be just slightly in her favor to do that. Yeah, but didn't that. we saw that during the presidential election that more de- Democratic, well, they're both Democrats, but he's more conservative, so hopefully... That's what I'm saying. They, they all know how to do it. And yeah. believe me, a lot of lessons were learned from that campaign, and uh, I... I believe that certainly Republicans are catching up to that game. If you look at a lot of the Republican primaries, a lot of it was early voting and by mail. Mm. It's kind of crazy because they've learned. I mean, you know, that doesn't take them long. He's pro-choice. I'm sorry. He's pro-life or whatever we're calling it these days. And it said that he has an A rating from the NRA, whatever that also means. Oh, he's a Republican. He's like a conservative Republican. It's, it's, It's crazy. Who obviously only runs as a Democrat. He's doing what our listener is doing. Oh, he's gaslighting the Democrats. Yeah, he's fucking he's it up. He's doing what our listeners sw- doing in reverse. Yeah, he switched his affiliation yeah. to fuck up our shit. Yeah. Fuck you. Fuck that guy. Well. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. Millionaires and billionaires. Because it will offend the millionaires and the billionaires. Read our essays at unftr.substack.com. Because remember, it will always be free just like public education and healthcare should be in this country. <laughs> That's my butthead. Is it good? Do it again. <laughs> Maybe you should go Beavis. Go higher. I don't know. What does what Beavis say? All the way up here. I don't know that one. Uh, Beavis. Uh. Uh. See you later. Uh. See you later, 99. Uh. Uh. <laughs> You're hot. <laughs> Ew. Uh. <laughs> Gross. Hey. <laughs> See you later.